You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. So if you have your scriptures, you can go, go ahead and open up there with me. If you don't have a Bible this morning, that's fine. There should be a black Bible somewhere underneath the seat around you. And if you don't own a Bible, please consider that a gift from us to you. Again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. And when you've turned there, go ahead and stand with me this morning for the reading of God's word. Again, Mark chapter 7. Verses 31 through 37, Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Then he returned uh, from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence. And I want to say if it's your first time, thanks for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here. If you were here last week, you already heard my Barry Manilow voice. It's just been continuing to carry over. So I want to apologize ahead of time that I cannot help it. My voice is not typically this way, but I'm working through it, okay? So uh, Scott's already mentioned, we're going to continue our work through the book of Mark this morning. uh, And we're finishing up chapter number seven. Before we jump in, I would love to pray for us and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll, I'll do that. Father, thank you. Thank you for the beauty, the majesty of your gospel word that you have given. We thank you that the scriptures have been preserved for us. We thank you that you've given us a an open place that we might gather together, that we might not merely sing with our lips, but that our hearts might be joined together in adoration of your name. And so now as we humble ourselves under your mighty hand by submitting ourselves to your word, we ask Holy Spirit that you would minister to us, each of us, both individually and also corporately as a body. Give us that which we so desperately need, my God, Speak to us the encouragement that those who are faint-hearted need to hear. Bring the healing to those who may be sick, both physically or spiritually. God, put straight that which is out of joint in us. And my God, overall, meet the needs that we see and those that we do not. We ask that even as we read this text about you opening the deaf ears, we pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning your powerful word, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So last week we talked about the miracle of Jesus with the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman, who comes to Jesus and begs that Jesus would heal her daughter who is demon-possessed. And without getting too much into the details, the focal point is that Jesus speaks uh, 
to this woman and heals her daughter without ever even seeing her daughter. He never touches her daughter. He never lays his hands on her. Now, we may assume that perhaps he speaks to the demon in prayer, but the Bible doesn't record that he says anything. Instead, just by the authority of Jesus, he tells her, your daughter's going to be made well, and within that very hour, she comes back in the daughter's well. And this method, of course, is turned on its head now with this passage in that Jesus not only does things, but does some pretty interesting things, things that you and I would maybe consider weird things. In the miracle of this deaf man who has a speech impediment, Jesus doesn't just speak, but he interacts with him. He does these symbolic, seemingly ritualistic things, and we must know that he doesn't do it because he has to. Jesus has the authority to do anything without a word, and yet he chooses to do it with this man. And so for the sake of my voice, which is failing, I'm going to jump ahead in my notes and tell you the end before the beginning and then spend some time in it. But what's going on in this passage? Well, I think that what's happening is that Jesus' miracle of opening the ears connected to the opening or the loosening of the tongue is not just biologically true. If you've ever perhaps you've seen this in the medical field or you work in the medical field, you know that oftentimes a child who's deaf also will struggle with speech impediments because hearing is so interconnected to speech patterns. And so it wouldn't be uncommon that to heal someone of their uh, deafness would also include the potential that they might be able to speak more clearly. But that's not what's only happening here. No, the, the hearing being connected to the speaking is symbolically representative of what Jesus is trying to accomplish in this miracle Namely that there's something about the miracle of opening the ears that loosens the tongue. We see this because not only does the man hear and then speak, but then immediately after, Jesus charges the people, don't tell anyone about this. And it says, and every time he did, they said it even more. So something about what they had seen and heard in the miracle had caused their tongues to become unloosed and nothing could stop them from proclaiming the glories of Christ all around the area. Now, I think that there's something to be said about Jesus acting out this miracle almost in a symbolic, ritualistic, charades-like fashion. You must think of it like if you were speaking to a deaf person, you might have to, have you ever, have you ever gone to, uh, let's say, another country and you don't speak the language, you notice you start doing things that don't make much sense with your hands and you talk louder and people are like, why are you yelling and what is this? It's because you're trying to communicate something and you know there's a language barrier. And I think interestingly here, Jesus to, it, uh, to this deaf man is interacting in a way that he didn't act with the woman whose daughter was demonized. But it's not for the deaf man, it's for us. It's to communicate something to us. What miracle is it that we need that our ears might be opened to the word of God so that our tongues might be loosed for the glory of God? Now, I want to point out before I jump into the first portion here, something unique about this miracle also is that Jesus pulls this man aside. Verse 31 says, when he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay a hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. Now, we've watched Jesus do many miracles, but most of them, 
most of them, not all of them, but most of them have been pretty public. They've been more pronouncements, declarations of Christ's kingship and his kingdom. They've been signs, like the feeding of the 5,000, for instance. It's a pretty big crowd to do something that spectacular amongst. But here we see Jesus pull this man aside privately. Now, it's not the first time he's done this. If we remember only a couple chapters earlier, Jesus did this same thing with Jairus when his daughter was in need of a healing. Now, there's a couple principles here. The first one I'll mention briefly, but I want to focus in on the second one. The first one is, Jesus gives us an example to follow, namely, that our good works are not meant to be lived out merely for the fame of the crowds, but for the glory of the Father. We know that Jesus is teaching us here that even though Jesus' fame is going to spread, his interest is compassion for this man, not that he would be famous. He cares not about the glory of man. The book of John tells us that he spoke to the Pharisees and he said, how can anyone trust you, Pharisees, because you just receive your glory from man and I receive my glory from the Father. I don't care what man's opinion is of me. I care about the Father's opinion. So Jesus pulls this man aside because he has compassion on him. This, of course, is something that we should follow. But there's a second piece to this. And that second piece kind of stuck out to me, obviously, because this week I've been sick and kind of laid up in bed, all isolated, you know, mopey. And uh, there was this line from the pulpit commentary that said this, and it, and it stood out. The, those who wrote the pulpit commentary wrote this about this passage. And they're speaking particularly about Jesus pulling the man aside. They say, quote, this was done, no doubt, to fix the attention of the afflicted man upon Christ himself. And I thought, that was one of those moments that shouldn't be an aha moment. It's like a duh moment, but it's like, oh, that makes tons of sense. Now, let me reread it to you so you know what he's saying. This act was done, no doubt, to fix the attention of the afflicted man upon Christ himself. In other words, there's something that happens to us when we're afflicted that God chooses to pull us alone, bring us by ourselves so that our eyes might be fixated on him and not the trouble because it's the focus on the trouble and the hardship and the suffering which causes us such great despair. And we cannot help ourselves but to be adamantly obsessive about the things that beset us. But if we read the scriptures, it's oftentimes, for instance, like Peter as he walks on water, when he turns his eyes away from the Lord Jesus and towards the storm is when he sinks. Or as Jairus, a couple chapters before this, is on his way to his house, and because Jesus had chosen to heal the woman who had the issue of blood, the daughter had died. And all the mourners are outside Jairus' house, and they begin to say, we're so sorry, Jairus, your daughter's dead, and they're crying, and they're throwing sand up in the air, and they're weeping and making a great commotion. And Jesus says, Jairus, look at me. Do not fear, only believe. And then he isolates Jairus, and he says, everybody out of the house, Peter, James, and John, come with me, Jairus. Let's get in the house. Your daughter's not dead. She's sleeping. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, it means that Jesus often uses isolating circumstances to reveal himself to us. Now, I want to say this. It doesn't mean that you and I want to start isolation ministries in the church to make sure that we can help people out. You know, turns out loneliness leads you to know Jesus more. No more home groups, you know. Sit at home and wait it out. You sick? We're not doing a military anymore. This is all about the glory of Christ, baby. Figure it out. No. 
But it does mean that as Christians, we ought not to despise the circumstances that bring us alone to be with the Lord because it's in those moments that the Bible has shown us over and over again he desires to reveal his glory to us and manifest to us his tender goodness. I wish I had time I could speak about example, example after example in the Old and New Testaments. Very, sim- very simple ones would be like Moses who has seized the glory of God when? When he's alone on the mountaintop and he's hidden in the cleft of the rock. Or Elijah when he is chased by Queen Jezebel into a cave and suffering and then he hears the whisper, the still small whisper of the voice of God. Over and over again we see that oftentimes when we're isolated, like Jacob on one side of the river Jabbok, and we send everybody else ahead to go see Esau, it's at that moment that the angel of the Lord appears to wrestle with you and to reveal himself. Now, deafness is often used in the Old Testament throughout all the prophets as a sort of symbolic sickness of the children of Israel. The prophets over and over in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and all the minor prophets They say things like, Israel, you have become deaf and hard of hearing. And they always connect this with Israel's stubbornness of heart. They continue to say that they've rejected Israel. You've rejected the voice of God with your stubbornness of heart. And so because you've rejected God by not listening to his word, you have lost your light, your voice to the nations. You are no longer a light to the nations, but you've become an abomination. What made Israel distinct, which was the word of the Lord in their midst, was now despised among them. And so the result of that was that they could no longer be a light to anyone. Now, it wouldn't be difficult for me to draw parallels culturally for us, but I think it's important that we don't generalize this text and this passage, but we try as best as we can to personalize it. And here's why. Because you and I are men and women that are like the children of Israel. And we often close our ears to the Lord and to his word, and we seek to find our own manner of solutions for all the problems that we face. We obsess over these problems and we struggle to look to God, but instead we look to other counterfeits to fix what it is that's gone wrong. And so in doing so, we often make a bargain that we ought to never make. We deafen our ears to the word of life in order to find temporary stop gaps for our suffering. And yet we know deep down in our heart that the scriptures already told us the only path to real life is in the word of life manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. In short, if we stop listening to the Lord in order to entertain idols, the Bible tells us we become deaf and dumb like our idols. This was the prophet's major issue with Israel. He said, you keep making idols of wood and metal and gold And none of these idols can speak. None of these idols can hear. None of these idols can act. And so you've become like them. You've become deaf and dumb, and you don't act. And this was the beef that the prophets had with Israel. Now, why is that important? Well, because remember that we're reading the book of Mark, which is an announcement of the king, the Messiah, who's come to a people. Jesus has come to the deaf ears of the children of Israel that they might be unstopped that they might hear the word of the gospel of his grace and that their mouths might be reloosened again to proclaim the glories of the Lord. And through this miracle, Jesus is going to reveal his purpose 
to unstop the ears of the nations, to loosen their tongues. It's why every single gospel ends with go and make disciples proclaiming to the nations because now your tongues have been loosed. Have you ever wondered why Acts chapter 2, the spiritual gifts tongues, it isn't always what we think it is with our, we could super spiritualize. It's a loosening of a, what the idols had done to us is now overturned. Now your, your tongue has been loosened to do what? To bring glory to God and to preach the gospel, this word that brings life. And not just Israel, but remember what happens in Acts chapter 2? Every nation's there. All these nations come to Jerusalem because God has an intent to take the gospel to every nation. Now, let's continue in the story and see as Jesus, what is this gospel word that he's bringing? Well, he's going to live it out. He's not going to say it. He's going to symbolize it for you. Verse 33, taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touches his own tongue. Now, I want to mention that if I had ever tried that at prayer meetings, you guys probably wouldn't keep me around for very long. This is a very odd thing to do, is it not? And you might deal with the fingers in the ears. Spitting on my hands, the moment that I reached, especially now, I mean, since COVID, it's like you see any spittle, we're like, whoa, you know, we put on hazmat suits and stuff, and Jesus spits on his fingers and puts his hands in this guy's mouth. Verse 34, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Now, there's two things that I think is happening here. The first is so very obvious. Jesus is exhibiting great compassion on this man. And that that compassion leads to what theologians call interposition. Interposition is very simple. It means me in your place. You take my spot, I take your spot. If I interpose myself, I stand in the way. I take your spot. And here we see Jesus literally acting this out. He's acting out the interposition. His very fingers in this man's ears. His spittle in this man's mouth. Now, why the finger? I could go on. There's so much symbolism here, but why the fingers? Well, every Hebrew would have known that the tablets of Moses that held the Ten Commandments were said to have been written by the very finger of God. Jesus playing on this when the Pharisees asked him, why do you do these miracles on the Sabbath? He says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, no kingdom divided against itself can stand. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then you must give glory to God. He says by the finger of God because he's saying, I am the Yahweh who wrote the law. And he puts his fingers in the ears of the deaf man, those self-same fingers that represent the perfect righteousness of God. And then, of course, he spits on his hand, and you think, man, is he just being a charismatic I know some of you thought that, okay? Some of you charismatics, don't be offended, all right? I grew up in the charismatic church. I am a fellow of you, okay? But I know you thought it. You thought, this is TBN stuff. I don't like it. But hear me. If you and I are dust, then Jesus spits on his hands, and he begins to communicate without saying a word, I am the potter and you are the clay, or as he told Moses, when Moses says, don't choose me, God, I have a speech impediment. And what did God say? Who made man's mouth, Moses? I'm the potter and you are the clay. 
He spits on his hands and begins to mold the man from dust that he created. He who formed us in our mother's womb can still form us today. And then there's this moment that seems to be, um, seems to me to stand out. We haven't seen it yet in Jesus. And that is that he groans. He sighs. Now this is interesting because we could, is it heavy lifting? Why is he, is he tired? I can understand that. I know I, I would be tired after everything that he's done so far. But I don't think that's what's happening here. Jesus is not exhausted by this very tough miracle. He he is not exasperated by miracles. He is the king of kings. He is the omnipotent one. Um, we've already seen what he's done without even speaking to the woman whose demonized young girl had been tragically bedridden. No, I think what's happening here is Jesus is saying in this moment of interposition that he's acting out, he will have to take the pain and suffering of humanity that is the result of sin. This man is deaf and this man cannot speak because of the result of sin. This was not the creation that we saw in Genesis 1 where everything was good. And friends, you don't have to live long to look at our world and say, we are not living in the shalom of Genesis 1 and 2. Things are not all good. And Jesus is now coming into the world that he made and he's seeing these people who are suffering deeply from the results of this sin. And he himself knows that he will have to bear that suffering. He will put himself in their place. Many people say, you know, Court, many people were crucified on Roman crosses. What's the big deal about Jesus? He's just one among many. That's true, friends, but Jesus was not merely punished by Roman centurions. Jesus was not merely punished by Caesar and his authority. Jesus endured the very wrath of God. The book of Isaiah says that it was the will of the Father to crush Christ in our place. That all the sins that you and I deserve, the justice of God fell on him like a hammer on an anvil. And Jesus here knows if he's going to finish this problem of sin and suffering once and for all, he's got to be the one to do it. He sighs knowing that he will be in the garden of Gethsemane a few years from now and he will sweat great drops of blood because he knows what is ahead. You see, the gospel is a word of atonement. It's a word of interposition. It's not just a word of spiritual technique. It's not a word of religious ideology. The gospel is not a word of how you can get to heaven. No. What's unique about Christianity is not that we have a system of morality. Many religions have systems of morality and something to say about what's right and what's wrong. That shouldn't shock you, right? Many religions say, if you kill someone, this is wrong. No, what's unique about Christianity is that it is the only religion that we hold that our God entered into human history, took on human flesh, and endured suffering like you and I. No other religion has this. Their God suffered. Their God met with the hurt. Their God went to the depths of human suffering. Oh, no, that's debasing a God. But that is what our God did. The antidote to our deaf ears is not merely the law, the finger of God written on the law, but it has to be the hands, the nail-scarred hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the, it's the word of the gospel of grace. Jesus knows this. 
He says, Israel may be deaf, but I will blow their minds when I preach to them my word because it will be a word of me in their place for their sins. Now, I love the, how this passage ends because this is one of my favorite passages in Mark. I hope that it's yours too by the end of this morning. Watch how the people respond to Jesus here. And you got to remember, there's some times where people respond to Jesus and he just kind of, it, it's not great, Okay. You read it and you're like, this is depressing. Why don't they see it? Now, what I always try to do is say, okay, I'd probably be in that group though, you know, just to be honest. Like, it's easy to be like, you know, what kind of idiot didn't know Jesus was Jesus? And then you're like, oh, me for half my life, you know? So I try to be honest and fair, but this is one of those ones where they just understand it. And it's this, this wonderful line that comes from it. It says this, verse 36, Jesus charged them to tell no one but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. The advance of the kingdom cannot be stopped. Verse 37, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, here's the line, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. They say, this man can do nothing wrong. Everything he does is good. Truly, he must be the Messiah. Truly, he must be the king. It hearkens us back, or it should, to 1 Samuel chapter number 18. When King David was juxtaposed against King Saul, and you see how the people respond to him. Listen to this, 1 Samuel 18. David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. You see, David had, because the Lord was with him, the hearts of the people. All of them, they loved David. They couldn't get enough David. Saul even can't kill him, at least not openly, because he knows they, people love him too much. And so he stands in fearful awe of David. They have songs about it. Saul has killed his thousands of our enemies, but David is tens of thousands. It really grinded Saul's gears. And here we see that Jesus, remember where we're at in the book of Mark. You got to imagine how this grinds the gears of every single leader, every single king, every single, the people love Jesus. They say, this is the guy. He does all things well. Now, I want to I spend some time, the rest of our time together, thinking about this one singular line about Jesus doing all things well. I want us to ponder the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ and what it means. It means that Jesus was perfect. And when I say that, you probably say, well, yeah, of course, Jesus is perfect. But I want to spend some time really considering this. That means two things. There's two, there's two sides of the coin of perfection, right? We know this. It's commission and omission. Okay, it's what we do and what we don't do, those kind of things. Jesus never committed a single sin in his entire life. And hear me on this. And I mean that on the basis of how he defined sin in the Sermon on the Mount, which means Jesus did not only not fornicate, but Jesus didn't lust in his heart after another woman. I want you to think about what I'm saying to you about Jesus' perfection. You and I might not last the hour with our own motivations. I'm just being, I'll speak for myself. 
Jesus his entire life, never did a sinful thing. But not only that, the other side of it is true. Every action that Jesus took, both in thought and in deed, was always perfect, good, righteous, and true every time. If Jesus got angry, he was only righteously angry. If Jesus was compassionate, he was never compassionate so that he could be tolerant of sin and be liked by somebody else. Are you thinking, think about this. He never had a mixed motivation. He never did evil. He did all things well. Now, the reason I want us to meditate on that is because this, this is the hope offered to us in the gospel. Hear me, hear me, this is important. The gospel is not merely that you and I, our sins have been forgiven by Jesus Christ if we believe on his name, although they have been. The gospel is not merely that God has promised his Holy Spirit to fill you and empower you to live a life that's pleasing to him, although he has. No, the gospel is that the entirety of salvation and belonging to God hinges on this single transaction of faith that Christ's total perfection has been reckoned to you and to me by grace through faith and that no power of hell, no scheme of man can erase that record that's been attributed to you. And it's an entirely a gift, entirely a gift that if you were to try to earn it, it would be the one thing you would do to mar it because then you'd try to earn the unearnable. So when we say Jesus did all things well and we are in him, what we're saying is that his perfectly spotless record is attributed to you and me by grace through faith. That when the father looks down at us, he sees every single act that Jesus took, every motivation of his heart, and he says that's what you are. He sees every act of Jesus denying his flesh, denying his flesh, and he doesn't see you, when you, you were succumbing to the flesh over and over. No, he sees Christ who denied the flesh. That's you. That's your record. And then, as though it couldn't get any crazier, it means that because you're his, he will continue to treat you as the son or daughter that you are all the days of your life, no matter what earthly trial you may face, on the basis of Christ's record. There was a woman named Fanny Crosby. She was a blind woman who was famous for writing hymns. And she didn't make very much money. And so she would write often and sell her hymns or sell pictures, sell her writings uh, to try to make money to eat. One day she was praying. The story goes, she needed $5. She had no money. And someone knocks on the door and says, I just felt like the Lord sent me over here. Here's, I forgive you $5, Fanny. And she writes in her prayer journal and says, I could not attribute it to anything other than that Christ knew my needs and met them. And then I sat down to write, and she wrote this hymn. I want you to hear this hymn. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divine comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. Now here's the line. For I know... Whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. Then she follows it up, one more line. For I know that whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. 
This last week, some of you may have seen this, but Pastor Tim Keller passed away. And I was watching online and looking up just kind of different tributes to him. If you're not familiar with Tim Keller or some of his work, you should read some of his books, some of the most wonderful books. Um, the Reason for God's a wonderful book. Prodigal God's a wonderful book. Really, you, can go, you can't go wrong. But I ran across this one video of him speaking to young people during the pandemic. And this young pastor was asking him, Pastor Tim, he says, what would, what would you say to young people that are worried about the state of the world? They're worried about the things that are going on. They're worried about how crazy it's gotten. They're worried about their families. They're worried about having families. They're worried about whether or not they should even worry about trying to have families. And he said something that was so simple and I thought so profound. He said, you know, he started by saying philosophically, of course, he says, some people might say, well, why is it that you serve, if, a God, if you have a serve a God that's so large and so grand and so big that he can do anything that he wants, then why would, he, why would that God allow all this uh, pain and suffering in the world? And Tim Keller says, well, if we are granting that there is a God who is wiser than us and so far wiser than us that we couldn't comprehend him if we tried and so much more powerful than us that we couldn't stop him if we tried, then perhaps that would leave room that maybe that there are reasons that are wiser beyond our comprehension for why he would allow something such as this. That maybe there are reasons, even though you and I don't know them, that that must at least be an option. And of course, you know, he said it in his typical Tim Keller way that was like, I don't know, witty and around 140 characters. And then he said, this is what really stuck with me though. He said, but honestly, what I would say is that if Jesus really did rise from the grave, he said the most out, outstanding and outlandish claim, if Jesus really did rise again from the grave after dying on the cross, he said, we can be confident everything's going to be okay. And we said, why? He said, well, if he can undo the effects of the death on the cross and do it right before everybody's eyes and he's alive and he's the reigning king, we can be certain that he's going to do good towards us. And as I read this passage, I thought of it like this. If this passage is true and Jesus does all things well, you and I, friends, can be certain that he will make all things new. Or like J.R.L. Tolkien said, perhaps all of the sad things really will come untrue because they started at the resurrection coming untrue. The tears of Mary Magdalene and Mother Mary were wiped away as Jesus walked out of the tomb and it was the first fruits of the resurrection for you and I. And so we can say like Fanny Crosby who's blind that whatever may befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. He has done all things well and friends, he'll continue to do all things well. That's my prayer for you this morning is if you're suffering, if you have hardship, that you'll know that Jesus has done all things well. He's perfect. And he will continue to do all things well until he makes all things new again. And perhaps you have lots of joy in your heart and there's much to be elated about. I want to say you can celebrate that, friends. You know why? Because you're getting a taste, a foretaste of the kingdom that is on the way where Jesus will make all things new and he'll make your greatest joys look like they were your greatest nightmares once you see the eternal glory face to face. Isn't that great news? The best meal that you've ever had is like ramen noodles compared to the marriage supper of the lamb. 
your happiest days, they're going to pass away like a fleeting thought compared to that one moment when we see him face to face. You can be certain that Jesus will make all things new. And the reason is because when he said it is finished on the cross, he had done all things well. Let me pray for us. Father, I come to you now and I say, for any under the sound of my voice who may be going through pain or suffering or struggle, I ask, Holy Spirit, would you meet with them now in the power of your resurrection and in the tenderness of your still small voice that they might know that you are a good God and that that simple sentence is much deeper, it's much more unfathomable than we could ever imagine, that you being good, truly good, truly perfect, is the greatest thing that we could ever imagine. And so would you extend your goodness to us and meet us where we are, Lord Jesus. For those under the sound of my voice that are just exuberant, they have joy this morning, I pray that you would exponentially increase their joy in you, meet them in their joy, my God, and laugh with them, and may they express that joy to their neighbors. But Lord, I pray for all of us that we might be able to say, just as your servant said in her hymn, whatever may befall us, Jesus, you do all things well. And we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.